0: It is a joy to be with the Well Community Church again. The last time I was here, I was sharing with you about how God had been blessing my wife and I uh, in falling in love with his answer of no regarding our prayer to have a child. Um, And so I come to you today now one of three. Because the Lord is faithful. Um, And I would love to share more about that, but Matt didn't give me the two hours I asked for, so (laughs) let me just start in prayer. Father, we're ready to hear from you and we're ready to obey you in joy. So in that, Lord, soften our hearts, speak to us, convict us, correct us, shape us, encourage us, lift our heads, Lord that as we go through this thing called life that weighs down on so many, people would be intrigued to see so many others who have been lifted through it. And we'd be prepared to profess why. We love you, Lord, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I texted this to him last week, but Matt's sermon last week was Powerful. And especially when he started talking about his son, um, an odd, very odd thing, my eyes started having this allergic reaction when he started talking about it. And I don't know why, but naturally, when he started talking about that, I could sympathize with what he was saying. Um, he is a veteran parent a billion times over. But the fact that the love exists between father and son, I can sympathize. And I think when we talk about sympathy, it's something that connects us as human beings. We all enjoy sympathy, we all desire sympathy. We recognize sympathy when receiving it, it feels good. In different aspects of our lives, close friendships, marriages, whatever it is, a viewpoint, we go through this thing called life and the human experience, and it's not sunshine and rainbows all the time. It's not all fluttery, it's not easy, it's hard. You get beat up in major ways, in minor ways, no matter what it is, a minor scrape or organ deficiency. It doesn't matter. When you're telling someone about your struggle, when you're telling someone about the trial and suffering there's something you desire from them, and oftentimes, the response you get is deliverance. They they're immediately giving you the answers for deliverance, and the first thing you're seeking for at that point is just the sympathy. You're seeking for these two words of, "I know," or "I'm sorry." Man, that's hard. close friendships or marriages, maybe you've been on the receiving end or the giving end of coming to this person and telling them about this thing, either major or minor, that just happened to you. Let me tell you about how my day was at work. Or let me tell you about this person that did this thing to me. All this stuff that happened and in this major way, this is how it broke me or this is how it left me feeling. And then they immediately greet you with the deliverance and you're just waiting for them to say, oh man, I know when you pour out your heart to them about how it made you feel, how it left you, how it left you feeling, why you're sad, why you're frustrated, why you're angry. And they respond, I know. It's the same desire that I think contributes to the fragmentation we see in the country regarding politics, echo chambers. People are looking to be in the groups where they're going to receive the I know. Because there's so many different scars on people. And everyone has answers for deliverance. And no sympathy. But then there's a kind of a downfall in that regarding our human condition. And that because we lack the I know, because we lack the sympathy that we're looking for, we become addicted to chasing it. And we neglect the fact that we actually need deliverance. And so I've had conversations with some people who actually, in the, for the first time, they've had this conversation. They've talked, they pulled their heart out they've, they've shared about how they've been scarred, about how they've been beaten and bruised in different ways. And then they receive an I know, and it's like, oh, it feels so good. And then three years down the line, they're still trying to seek that out not taking ownership or not wanting to look at responsibility on what needs to be done on their end, how deliverance comes. Because they're thirsting for the I know time after time after time after time over and over again. And this happens because ultimately you'll never receive the great I know from another human being. And I don't think sympathy is the only thing that we should seek. We should seek deliverance, and Jesus is the one who offers both. He is the great I am, the great high priest, therefore the great I know is who he is. And in this passage in Hebrews, I think it's, very, it's structured pretty simple, that Jesus is the great high priest, deal with it. Then he gives a logical argument on why he's better than the other high priests or any other priests who may have come immediately or even down the line afterwards. And then he shares or I'll share from us from this passage on how we should respond. It's hidden throughout the passage, but I'm going to expound on it a little bit. So let's start with Jesus as the high priest. We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. The authors of of Hebrews is doing something that's been done before in the scriptures. It happened a lot in the, in the gospels. The main point of the gospels was to present a story, present an argument for how and why you should see Jesus appropriately and accurately. Matthew is like, Hey, he's talking to his readers, you know, about the Messiah. Well, guess what? Jesus is that Messiah. Look at the lineage. Mark is saying, hey, you might think that this Messiah is going to come down on this white Trojan horse and trample all his enemies. But I'm telling you, the Messiah actually came to be trampled, that his enemies will become sons and daughters. And then Luke is just in the background saying, hey, this Messiah is pretty historical. He's legit. I've got the receipts. And John is saying that this Messiah who was crucified... It's not just a special third party sent by Yahweh. He is Yahweh, the beginning and the end, the one true and living God. And all of these woven together along with the Hebrew Scriptures, it begins to reorient the mind of a first century Jew, reconsidering the very purpose of all the things that they learned about previously, reconsidering the very purpose of the patriarchs, the very purpose of the prophets, the very purpose of the kings and also the very purpose of these priests. They all point to and are culminated in Jesus Christ. And and this is the shortest point made in this passage. Jesus is the great high priest. You you Jewish people, you're familiar with the priests and the high priests, yes? Well, Jesus is the culmination of them, the author is telling them. They all point to the finality of his priesthood. And guess what? He's the better one. He goes on to make that argument. And for the sake of time, I'm not going to read through all of the passage there. Hebrews 4, starting with verse 15. We don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. And he goes on to make this argument on how Jesus is better than these high priests. One, by actually meeting the qualifications of a priest, even set for man, and then gloriously exceeding them. But first, let me break down what a priest is. There's this priestly order in the uh, nation of Israel, the Levi tribe, they're a priestly tribe. And in general, they just have ritual duties, if anything, Uh, They would be closely uh, uh, resembling clergy today, really. If if Israel had a call to worship, which they did, they were in covenantal relationship with Yahweh. In general, Levi was to be mediators of the covenantal relationship with Israel and Yahweh. And the way that they mediated this was through their deeds and their service. They were professionals. They worked for this. They were supported by Israel to, to serve Israel, serve the temple or um, the tabernacle in the earlier times. And you had, in a general scope, you just had the Levites. That's the general term, because they're a priestly tribe. And then within the Levites, you had the priests that come from the lineage of Aaron. They're they're from the lineage of Aaron. Then you had the priest's priest, the high priest, which is also from the lineage of Aaron, and started with Aaron, chosen by God. And there's this sort of cosmic geography that happens that we don't see, that Israel didn't see, but it's necessary to deal with. And that's what the priest did, because Israel needed their sins atoned for constantly. The high priest on special days annually, year after year, the day of atonement, Yom Kippur, will go into the t- uh, temple or the tabernacle, and because th- what this invisible thing that's happening when Israel sins, there's this vandalism that takes place that you don't really see because the cosmic geography is about God's holy place, his dwelling, remove the sandals from your feet. This is my space, essentially what he's saying. You don't need those. And when they sin, this vandalism is happening, sort of like graffiti on a wall that has nothing but explicit nasty stuff all over it. I grew up down the street from a wall like this at my zone high school. I didn't go there; my parents made sure that didn't happen. But uh, every single week, there was vandalism on this wall, and every week they would spray it down anew. And then the next week, something else. And come to think of it, I don't wonder. I wonder why they never just spray painted it black. I mean, that's dumb. But but yeah, every week, and that's what this vandalism looks like. Every single time sin is entering into God's holy space, there's this vandalism that happens. And the priests would go throughout the tabernacle with an animal sacrifice, taking the blood, which is life. Sin is death. And they would take the blood and sprinkle it all over to remove the vandalism. On Yom Kippur, they would take two animals. They would take one, lay the hands on the animal to put all the sins of Israel on this animal and send it out. And then they would take another animal and sacrifice it to atone for Israel's sins. Payment for the sins and sending sin where it actually belongs, not in God's presence. These are the priests. Here's the problem. The sacrifice that was made was always temporary, just like the wall being vandalized week after week after week, day after day, year after year after year. And the author of Hebrews is telling you that Jesus is the better priest because his sacrifice is eternal. Pastor Matt preached on when he was talking about the repeat. The music sign that doesn't exist with Jesus' sacrifice. It's gone. I'm sure, maybe not sure, I always wonder that as people are bringing sacrifices, as priests are making sacrifices and they're recognizing their sinfulness, they got the Ten Commandments, they know that their hearts can't live up to it. And they got to be thinking, how long is this going to have to last? Week after week, year after year. And the answer is that it ends with Christ. He's the perfect priest. Because he offers the perfect sacrifice. How is it perfect? Well, one, like I said, he fits the Original mandate for what a priest should be in the first place for every high priest chosen among men is appointed to act on behalf of God in relation to God. Hebrews five, one through four. Jesus became man and was chosen from amongst them by God, just as every other priest is. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward, see himself as beset with weakness. This is the characteristic of every priest. Every priest who is human is beset with the vulnerability of human flesh. And Jesus, too, who was brought low and wrapped himself in human flesh. In that way, he, too, was beset with weakness. But here's the difference. Chapter 5, verse 3. This is of general priests. Because of this, he, or the priests, are obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. So the people go to the priest day after day, week after week, year after year, on the special year, Yom Kippur, this is for all of Israel now. All of Israel's sins collectively are being uh, atoned for by the high priest who himself has to offer sacrifices for Jesus, his sacrifice exists once, and that's it. 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ also suffered once for sins. Hebrews 10.10, and by that we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Jesus continues to match these profiles of a priest. Saying in verse 4, no one takes dishonor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. Then it goes on continuing this argument. Also, Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And he also says in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. There's a lot to be said about Melchizedek, and you guys are in for a treat because in later sermons it's going to be dealt with. Like I said, I don't have the two hours I asked for, but here's the simple thing. One, there's a bridging of the gap for the first century Jew in mind where it takes Psalm two, it takes Psalm 110, where it repeats these passages that says, you are my son. I've begotten you. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And it bridges the two. It says, hey, these passages are talking about the same person and Jesus is it. But then also, it takes and lifts Jesus out of the human category of a priest and says that Jesus ain't from the line of Aaron, though. He's a different priest. Melchizedek is first encountered in Genesis 14. And what I want you to focus on in that is that it is said that he has no beginning, no end. That's the point that's being made about Jesus' priesthood. It's not human in origin. And this priesthood is a weighty task. There may have been some of this, but I just can't imagine so many people standing at the priests and the high priests and then the servant Levites and saying, Levites, and saying, Man, they get to be in front. I want to be in front. They get to go into the Holy of Holies and bear the weight of Israel on themselves. I want to do that. But maybe that's a different sermon. But I know that there was a dilemma. I know that these men with this weighty task, knowing the darkness and the vandalism on their own hearts. When they think about the mediation they are doing between Israel and Yahweh and Israel coming to them and confessing their sins and them offering sacrifices for them. And, and I know that they're saying to themselves, look, I know that we are called by God to mediate this relationship, this covenantal relationship between Israel and you, Lord, but I can't help shake this feeling. I'm just like this person. I know there's vandalism over my own heart. And then I can't just tell them, hey, why don't you just go up in the Holy of Holies yourself? You know, you have to take care of it yourself. I can't have them stand before you, a holy and righteous God, without you declaring them pure to do so. Their response is going to be inevitably, I'm a man, a woman of unclean lips. Why am I standing before you? And for sure, they'll die. There needs to be another mediator. And so now, since you have this great high priest, go confidently toward his throne of grace. The place that was once wrought with fear and death due to the constant vandalistic stains on your heart, due to the constant vandalistic stains of your own deeds and your thoughts, is now home for the son and daughter, the one hidden in the perfect eternal sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the great high priest the great I know. You can now go to him, not only with your sins, confidently confessing them, but you can go broken in the bruises of, the, of life that's handed down those bruises to you. The broken pieces of your heart, you can bring them to him with, in the stories of how this has left you sad and broken and frustrated and angry. And he responds with a sufficient I know. Truly. Because he's not a displaced God too high not to enter into the human experience. He did it for us and with us. There is no greater love. How do we respond? This is my last point. Hold fast, draw near and trust the Lord. One, it's the jarring reality of life, uh, the work of the enemy and the sins in our own hearts. That can plant seeds of doubt. It can plant seeds of despair. You go through the reality of the brokenness of this world. You're constantly facing the whispers of the lying enemy. And then you have the sins in your own heart. It plants those seeds of doubt and despair. Man, Lord, I don't even know if you're there. I don't know if you actually love me. I don't know if I can actually do this. I don't know if this whole Jesus thing is for me. This Christian thing is for me. Hold fast to the confession. Literally translates the faith you profess. What is the faith you profess? That he's good. And through Jesus, you've been made so. That's what Paul is reiterating in Ephesians 3.14. My God, if you would only know the height, length, width, and depth of Christ's love for you. You know, doubt regarding our faith starts with doubting that. Hold fast. Draw near. And drawing near is what strengthens us in our holding fast to the profession. Does the reality of your own sin tire you out? Do you get sick of seeing the results of your vandalism? And maybe you get tired out in different ways where you need to be perfect. If you've been weary over sinfulness of your flesh, or if you've been weary over the fact that you can't be perfect, it isn't because you haven't reached some level of Christian that every Christian needs to reach. It's because you haven't been drawing near. It's because you haven't been drawing to the throne of grace that in the previous passage tells us that we can freely allow for the scriptures, as Matt says, to cut us to pieces. Revealing the truth of who we are, we can confidently do it because it doesn't actually scar us. Jesus took those scars for us, He was truly cut. And so we can go and expose ourselves, our failures, our flaws, lay them at the throne of grace that we would receive help to walk on this narrow road with wobbly legs. Draw near. Trust the Lord. Going back to the first point that I made, there's a caveat to Jesus being the sufficient I know. When we recognize Jesus as the sufficient I know, we don't draw near to Jesus in the same way that we would draw near to others seeking validation. Not only just seeking sympathy in a I know, but in also a you're right. We don't do that. We, we draw near to Jesus because we truly need help. We draw near to him because he truly understands. And we draw near to him because he truly offers deliverance. He's the way, truth, and life, not ours. Not our way, truth, and life. It says in Hebrews 5, 7, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. I want you to take a note of this passage, and I want you to think about this. When we think about drawing near to the Lord and we think about crying out to him, offering up prayers and cries, supplication, we think about avoidance, right? There's this storm I see ahead of me, Lord, and look, here's my prayer. Don't let me go through it. Don't let me experience it. And and hear me, there's nothing wrong with that. Jesus modeled it beautifully for us in the Garden of Gethsemane. That's the beautiful aspect of his modeling. That he freely went to the Lord, asked him to remove a cup he knew he had to drink. But this is what the author of Hebrews is saying, because it gets interesting. It says that as Jesus offered up these prayers and supplications, he was heard. Because of his reverence. And if we recollect this, we're thinking, wait, he was heard. Jesus prayed to have the cup removed from him. And then he was strung up on a cross. At, At what point was he heard? And that's because we think in terms of avoidance and not deliverance. Obviously, God shows his love for us in the fact that he avoids storms from us. But he also shows his love for us in the fact that he delivers us from them. Son, daughter, I'm going to have you walk through this storm, but take heart, I'm with you the entire time. That's what Jesus' life is. The storm of human fallenness, a broken world. I'm going to have you live through it. Endure pains of loss and trial and breakups and disease and death. I'm going to go through it too. Because I truly will know. We see it replete throughout the scriptures, trusting the Lord is knowing that he has and will always show his love through deliverance. Joseph, beaten, sold, lifted up. Israel, beaten, enslaved, lifted up. Jesus, humbled, beaten, mocked, rejected, crucified, lifted up above every name. And this is why we can freely live as what Peter calls us a royal priesthood after the order of our great high Priest. Not in the fact that we mediate for other people. In some way we do that. We don't mediate for them in the fact that we offer sacrifices. Our lives are that sacrifice. Romans 12. I appeal to you therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. We can willingly have ourselves exposed to the scriptures, we can willingly walk through storms and trusting the Lord. Because we hold fast to our confession, we draw near to him that we would receive help, and being reminded by him that we truly have a great high priest, a God king, who can sympathize with our weaknesses, truly, the great I know as you think about your storms remember those things hold fast draw near and trust his deliverance there's a stool here one with my water on it but also with the communion the bread and the cup Communion that we do is this reminder that we have the great I know in Jesus Christ a great high priest and he wasn't a distant God who didn't come to understanding the storms of the human life but he willingly walked toward it he is also the perfect confidant because he literally has the answer for every single problem in your life You can approach his table as a broken individual, but you must approach his table with a poor spirit because he's the great I know, but he offers deliverance. And the poor spirit recognizes that your deeds can't provide any sufficiency in being sacrificed. It is his life, his sacrifice, That offers what is sufficient and so as we prepare for communion as you look at the bread at the cup be reminded of the great high priest who has come and made the sufficient sacrifice we do this repetitiously but please hear me correctly it is not the sacrifice that's being made week after week, year after year. This is not a re-sacrifice. Communion is remembrance of the sacrifice, sufficient, eternal, once and for all. And we week after week, day after day, year after year, need to be reminded that it's been done once and for all. Be confident as you enter into the Holy of Holies from once Your commoners were no longer allowed to enter. But now, through the sprinkling of Jesus' sufficient blood on the eternally vandalized world, it has been eternally cleansed. Now we enter with confidence, being exposed willingly. Trust his love. Be thankful as you look at his broken body that it's his there for you that points to the truth that it will no longer be yours, broken, bruised, weak. But we will one day look on him with unveiled faces. Trust on the great I know, it's Jesus Christ. Be reminded, hold fast, draw near as you come to the table.